Welcome to Psychopaths and Sociopaths. Third run. Good job. Yeah, yeah, third time's a charm. Yeah. Uh, today we're going to talk about the grim sleeper, uh, Lonnie Davis Franklin Jr. Uh, there's a, I, I ended up doing a little bit more research on this guy, and I looked at his court case. Of course, I also, he had a long interview. Uh, well, interrogation. There we go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Long interrogation. Yeah, interrogation by the police, yeah. By the police on this guy right here. But this was one of the one cases where they used a lot of DNA to find this guy and find out who uh, raped and killed these women. Yeah. In uh, Los Angeles. Uh, now, there's not much on his uh, child life and everything like that, but there is, uh, to say, uh, being veterans and everything, there are some douchebags and assholes out there that have been in the military. Everybody has them. Every work has them and everything like that. This guy was one of those assholes. He was dishonorably mm-hmm. just charged. Uh, from the U.S. Army in 19, uh, July 24, 1975. And he w- what he did was he was in West Germany in Stratograd. I can't believe I said that right. But uh, he, he basically gang-raped a 17-year-old girl. And uh, this, this does happen in uh, military sometimes. And, but... He's got a lot of conventions and uh, convictions. Convictions, yeah. yeah. I like to use words sometimes. Mm-hmm. But what now. what really set, sets this apart on this one was it was one of those cases where they, at the time, they really didn't use that much DNA, mm-hmm. and they started doing a lot of DNA file uh, filing and um, what do you call it? Uh, forensic, uh, like forensic evidence and DNA. And, 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 yeah. yeah, on this one, because that's how they found out that he actually did these crimes. Yeah. Because they were trying to figure out how a lot of these young women were dying and everything. And they came up to the point where, hey, we found DNA from this uh, this person and they retrofitted it for the uh, family members. Mm-hmm. And that's how they found him. That's how they got the warrant for his arrest because it went from this the DNA from this uh, victim to the uh, DNA from this same, uh, a different victim. And it was a DNA match for him. Yeah, and he didn't, I mean, yeah, while well, everything, well, he was tried, convicted, and incarcerated in the state of California. Um, somebody handed out jail, jailhouse, you know, justice. And, uh, he just um, died recently. Yeah. Uh, last year, March 28th, they found him dead in his cell over at San Quentin. So, um, you know, I don't want to say thank you uh, to whomever it was. Uh, but yeah, hey, props, but, um, yeah, they, they're, they're holding him responsible from like 10 to 25 people, uh, I mean, potentially even more. Uh, he's got one survivor that's known. Uh, as far as uh, yeah, because they pulled a bullet out of her uh, body and mm-hmm. they saved her. Yeah, um, span of his crimes went from '85 to 2007. Those are the known murders. But uh, he, he, yeah, Lonnie Franklin. He, uh, let me see here. What was it? Uh, July 2010. He was arrested as a suspect, and after many delays, his trial began in 2016, February 2016. Um, and the trial went on for a couple of months because on May 5th of 2016, they convicted him of killing nine women and one teenage girl. 
uh, on June 6th, the jury, uh, they, they, I guess they convicted him, but then I guess that went into the sentencing phase. Uh, June 6th of 2016, they recommended the death penalty. Um, and on August 10th of 2016, the Los Angeles Superior Court sentenced him to death for each of the 10 victims named in the, uh, in the verdict. Um, so, oh, well, that, you know, it's good to see that at least somebody in California uh, still recognizes the death penalty. So, you know, we're not having to, like, you know, keep these people, you know, perpetually and, and ad nauseum, you know, alive. But uh, he, he was born on August 30th of 1952. He grew up in South Central Los Angeles. I mean, you know, born, bred, you know, L.A. guy. But uh, he, he was married. He had two children. He was given a dishonorable discharge from the Army on July 24th of 75. Uh, he, yeah, like you said, he, he was released from prison after a conviction of gang rape being a 17-year-old girl in Stuttgart, uh, West Germany. Um, he and two other service members stationed in Stuttgart stopped to ask directions uh, from the teen teenager and offered her a ride home. When she accepted, they put a knife to her throat, drove her to a field, and repeatedly raped her. Uh, she was able to feign interest in uh, Franklin and asked for his phone number. And that's how. <laughs> and that's, that's ridiculous. That's how they nailed him. Um, I'm surprised he's gonna get more time on this. Yeah, because and they they took pictures, they yeah. took pictures de of of the rape and uh, back in the '70s. I mean, like really. I mean, I can understand. You know, what I mean, because everybody, every dickhead with a damn cell phone these days. I mean, yeah, it takes we're, video. They're, they're doing it for the gram, right? Yeah. But they took pictures of the. Uh, you know, during the rape, and uh, they, let's see here, during the rape, photographs were taken by one of the rapists, and as Franklin did, uh, did later of the women he raped and murdered. So uh, in 89, he was also convicted of two charges of theft, uh, one charge of misdemeanor assault and one charge of battery. Uh, he served time for one of the theft charges. So, I mean, he's got... I mean, aside from the rape or from the rape charge initially that that cost him his military career, he he had a rap sheet, and so I mean he had spent time behind bars, um, and I and, and I you could maybe chalk it up. I mean, he grew up in South Central LA, so I mean it was maybe like a byproduct of well, we don't upbringing. have anything to uh, annotate. Something like that. Because yeah, he could have had a, yeah. like a wholesome family and everything. Like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm just saying, like you know, tr traditionally, we're just kind of looking at the, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, have we in, you know, like well, well, of our previous subjects, we we try to make that connection. So you know, that that's I mean, based on the the lack of information that we've got about his upbringing, just kind of maybe putting that out there. Now, before we kind of get off into the, you know, or get accused of being stereotypical or stereotyping. The numbers kind of play themselves out a little bit. You get a lot of gang activity. You get a lot of crime from that area. Um, you know, he may have been one of those exceptions to the rules, but you know, where did it go wrong? You know, but I mean, unfortunately, we again we don't have a lot of the information available to us. Yeah. But I mean, this guy just somewhere along the line he kind of went off the rails. A and little most bit. of the most of the people that he actually did uh, kill and rape were mm -hmm. prostitutes. Yeah, and it's that same stood that a lot of people, you know, a lot of people don't believe that if you're selling your body for anything, that you're considered a real person. Yeah, you're especially treated like a set class. Yeah, especially for uh, sexual orientation, and that really sucks. Especially 
because uh, I went on a tirade one one time with the banking and everything like that of how we need to reform the banking uh, because they're not allowing a lot of people that actually have good credit and everything like that. Uh, Black Rifle is one of them. Yeah. Uh, because they uh, they associate with a gun in their uh, in their uh, advertisement and everything like that. Hence, you know, we got this or just the name itself. Yeah. Uh, where they can't get bank loans to benefit their business or anything like that. And the same thing with. Uh, Anybody that does like porn or anything like well, that. Well, you know, <clears throat> mo- mo- most of most of the banking industry is you know controlled by one political party or the other. So I mean, we can get into that. Um, you know, we, we can we can we can really dive into that. But you know, with this guy, with with uh, you know with, with uh, you know Lonnie Franklin, I mean he. To his credit, he didn't nickname himself. So, I mean, he had several nif- nif- different nicknames. He was the Grim Sleeper, the Southside Slayer, and the Twenty Five Auto Killer. Um, yeah, because I actually like uh, because they actually had a task force that that was, it was yeah the Eight Hundred Task Force. Yeah, composed of six detectives and overseen by the Robbery Homicide Unit. I like I like that the the task force name though the Black Coalition fight uh, the community group called the Black Co- uh, Coalition Fighting. As the Southside Slayer Task Force. I mean, that's a good name for a task force. Right. Yeah. I mean, it really, it really is. Yeah. I was like, what, what task force are you in? The Southside Slayer Task Force. I mean, that almost sounds like a, like a platoon name or something. Like that yeah. With the Southside Slayers, you know. But um, he was formally kind of given that Grim Sleeper nickname by, uh, by the police. So. Yeah. You know, if you're going to be given a nickname, be given the nickname by the police. You know, but. Um, he, uh, nickname chosen, and, and, and that nickname was actually, it wasn't by the police, it was a nickname chosen by the LA Weekly. Uh, they released a, a 911 call from the 80s in which a man reported seeing a body being dumped by Franklin, giving the detailed description a license plate number of a van connected with the now closed Cosmopolitan Church. Um, uh, see here, uh, it doesn't really kind of go into the in, you know, ins or outs and the, the who's and why's of how he got the other two nicknames. But um, anyway, so he, man, he, like I said, he took pictures. I mean, he documented his kills. Yeah. So most, most of the killers that we've actually annotated in the show, they actually do uh, keep trophies. No matter what, except for like the women. Uh, we haven't really found anything with the women they kept trophies. No, I, I think that they're they like with uh, Vicky Jackson. I, there was that was just gumshoe police work. That was that was hardcore police work right there. Yeah, because um, it only took about two months. With uh, Eileen, uh, I can't even remember her name. Her last monster name. chick. Yeah, the monster girl uh, uh, from Florida. Uh, I mean, eyewitness reports and I mean ultimately they they I think they found the gun on her mm-hmm. it, yeah they so, found the 22 on her you know it just kind of goes to show that men may be just a little bit more I don't want to use the word sentimental because I, I I don't think that that's it's not sentimental it's uh it's more or less a trophy of the kill yeah it's kind of uh, like you trophy know, of the experience kind of like we would hang a deer head on the wall kind of a thing so yeah, yeah. um it's like what look what I did 
Yeah, so and, and a lot of them do that, and he even did pictures and everything. Yeah, too. I mean, like in December of 2010, the LAPD released like 180 photos of women found in Franklin's home. Um, uh, these people are not suspects. We don't even know if they're victims, but we do know this. Lonnie Franklin's ran a terror in, L- in L.A., and this is a quote, uh, which spanned over two decades, culminating with almost a dozen murders, certainly needs to be de- investigated further. And that was coming from then-police chief Charlie Beck. Um, in all, investigators found over th- over 1,000 photos and several hundred hours of video in his home. Uh, the images showed mainly black women of a wide age, uh, age range, from teenagers to middle age and older, often nude. Police believe that Franklin took many of the pictures, which show both conscious and unconscious individuals dating back 30 years. Yeah, uh, photos. Yeah, the photos were released to the public in an effort to identify the women. Um, on November 3rd of 2011, Reuters, 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 they they reported the police were considering Franklin as a suspect in six more slings in addition uh, of additional females. Uh, police were investigating two of the six as potential victims killed during the 14-year lapse between the initial spree of the, of the Grim Sleeper murders that ended in 88 and several more that began in 2002. Of uh, the four remaining victims, two bodies were discovered in the 80s. And thank you. And uh, were linked to Franklin. And they linked Franklin to the six additional killings after reviewing hundreds of old case files and seeing or seeking the public's help and identifying a collection of 180. So that's where that 180 photos came in. They, were, yeah. they released those to try to help identify them. Um, I'm what, well, I know a lot of them. I wonder if they were, like, photos of the actual uh, dead bodies or it was just photos of them. I think, if anything else, I mean, if they, if they were, like, the bodies, I think that they I've went seen through some those. Because I've seen some of them, and they were actually dead bodies. Yeah, so, I mean, in a lot of those, they're going to take... And, I mean, they're obviously going to, I don't want to say edit, uh, they're going to crop those videos. I mean, because obviously if the, the bodies are naked, they're not going to release those out to the public. But, I mean, I'm thinking maybe they did, like, headshots or, you know, they, they, they crop the videos to be, you know, uh, just of the face uh, to see if friends, family, uh, you know, uh, loved ones would be able to come forward and say, hey, I know who that is. Because, uh, I mean, at that point they were treating all all the women in those photos is basically just a large conglomerate of, of Jane Doe's. And so I think as far as, I know that we get on this huge rail against social media a lot as it relates to you know, people like athletes or whatever, but um, they, they uh, some, of the, some of the women that were identified in those photos Prosecutors didn't even charge him with the murders of, of uh, you know, out of fear of delaying the trial. I mean, they wanted this guy put away. Yeah. And they thought, man, okay, maybe at this point, you know, once he's already in, incarcerated, he's, he's serving a sentence. They know he's not going to go anywhere. So they they can, at that point, they can have free access to him under controlled circum, you know, in a controlled environment, i.e. at the prison. And they can go and interview him as many times as they want because it's not like he can deny the or decline the interview. Yeah, because the judge at the time was really just fabricated that the he, he, was, he existed. Yeah. And her, she's like, in my time as a, a judge, I've never, never really had any kind of uh, 
monster like you. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> and she even says like it it doesn't matter anymore because you're going you're you're getting the death penalty. Yeah. Well, and and see, you'll you'll see that a lot. Um, where officials that are associated with a case, whether it be the judge, whether it be the lawyers, whether, you know, prosecution, whatever, or even public figures that have public sway, you know, like a governor or, you know, what have you, they have to be very careful about what they say. Because if, if say, if the judge had come out and said, it doesn't matter because, I mean, he's going to get the death penalty, the defense could have used that as a way to declare a mistrial because yeah. at that point you're denying that person their due process by saying, well, I know that you did this before we even went in. I know you're going to get this. Yeah, you're make, not you looking know. at the evidence. Yeah, I mean, not... they're, they're going to look at that and they're going to be like, okay, well, we could either get this judge recused or we can file for a mistrial because of X, Y, Z. Or have it sent to another town. Because yeah. usually, usually on stuff like this, uh, especially uh, heavy cases, they do not do it in the same town. Yeah, they, they yeah they don't, and and it's just because I think of the media exposure, um, and the due process. And yeah, because they, I mean, wanna, they don't want you, you want to be able to keep the jury as impartial as possible. Yeah, and and I think too with social media, your that is going to be so so hard to do. I mean, it's going to just continually become a harder and harder thing to to accomplish. Just because you're going to get those opinions that are, I mean, they're going to get formed. Even if it's just the smallest amount of exposure, you get somebody like a judge saying he's going to get the death penalty. Somebody that is a potential juror sees that, they're going to have it in their head. They're going to be like, well, the judge already thinks that he's guilty, and I get selected. That, that to me, means I should, you know, Ruling, you know, vote in favor of the death penalty, but but he really did need the he, death penalty. He he really did he he really did need it, but that didn't exclude or didn't didn't excuse the law enforcement and the, the detectives investigating him. It, it didn't give them a pass. I mean, they still needed it to build the case. Exactly, and the way they the way they said they did the interrogation, they propped him up like, "Hey, you're a smart person." You should, you do, you watch these, or you watch these cop shows and everything, you know about this. They were trying, it's a process to where you're, you're feeding the person's ego, and especially with uh, uh, most serial killers and everything that's, that's men-style serial killers, mm-hmm. not just anything against women. Of course, on that instance, you don't want to have a good, good, a good going on this, but, uh, what they ended up trying to do is they propped him, gave him his ego and everything like that, and they're like, "Hey, you, you watch this. You should know about this. Come yeah. on, you, come on." They were egging him, and eventually, uh, through the interrogation, he caved, even though it was a long interrogation and everything. But they, on 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 male serial killers, it, unless they just come out like some like uh, Ed Ed Gaines, yeah. He, as soon as he came forward for the uh, cops and everything, he, he just basically said, yes, I did do this. Yeah. There's a couple of serial killers that just go up and just tell you, it's like, yeah, uh, BTK killer, he did that. Yeah. Uh, 
and it kind of uh, makes you think there's like okay they just wanted to be caught right but or they just want to be uh they just want their uh what they did to be notarized to the point where yes i did do this stuff and you're gonna give me your praise yeah and so whatever his hang-up was, I mean, because we really don't see anything about him, like, taunting the police. or Mm-mm. He was doing this. I think he was doing it to— Just for his enjoyment. Yeah, he was just doing it for his pure enjoyment. He, look, he probably looked at it like not necessarily a sport, but it was more of a personal gratification. Like, he was getting off on the power kind of a thing. And, um, it, it, and ultimately, it caught up with him in a big, big way. Because uh, they—I mean— I mean, DNA, I, eyewitness accounts. I mean, he, they, we've got that one survivor. Um, let me see if I can find her name here. Uh, let's see here. No, I can't find her name. But uh, anyway, the case, case was all but airtight, but they still needed to go through the they, they, they still needed to provide the due diligence of building the case making it something that was presentable to not only the grand jury, but to the jury itself. Yeah, because this actually took about two years, the process. And a lot of people don't understand it. Like, I I really don't want to say it, but the Joy Floyd trial, that took a year. Yeah. And that surprised me. Yeah. Because to get all the evidence, I mean, yes, you had, like, uh, video evidence and everything like that of what was going on. It just <clears throat> having something go for a year and uh, it's processed within a year. Mm-hmm. It it seems like everything was shotgunned. Yeah, and, and and it was, and I think that complacency with prosecuting teams or prosecutor teams uh, plays into that uh, a lot. Uh, they. They get into this hurry, or they, they, they think that they've got this image that they've got to maintain based on however it was that the district attorney got elected. Um, they're going to be tough on crime, so they're going to just shotgun blast things together, and they're going to, you know, bailing wire and bubble gum, and they're, they're going to hope that it sticks. Um, sometimes it does. And some, most some, of yeah, it, sometimes it works, got... sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and it, I think, again, complacency and arrogance. I mean, just, just like arrogance and, and complacency uh, really – play into the, um, you know, the criminal mind, the, the prosecuting team as well. I mean, they're subject to that as well. I mean, because as I said, at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we're all, we're all fallible. But with this guy, I mean, photographic evidence, video evidence, forensic evidence, and a lot of the forensic evidence, this DNA evidence, uh, was because of Proposition 69, which in 2004, California voters, you know, they, they voted to pass this, um, the DNA be collected from all felons and everyone arrested on some specific charges, i.e. rape, murder, things of that nature. Um, yeah, because we're even DNA uh, scanned when, when we go in the military. Just And it's for to identify the body if we actually die yeah. overseas or something like that. Yeah, So, um, but authorities collected and sorted through thousands of DNA samples while he was on probation. Franklin's DNA was supposed to be entered in the system, but it was not as probation officers didn't collect samples from people who were on unsupervised probation from uh, between November of 2004 and August of 2005. Uh, probation department did not have the resources to collect samples in, until August of 2005. But, um, 
you know, they eventually did get his DNA, and they were able to match that up with a lot of the different victims. So that's what, you know, they tied it there. So, I mean, forensically, they put him on scene. They put at least put him in contact with the victim's body. Um, the photographic evidence that he had in his home, the video evidence that he had in his home. That basically made, made the case, like, yeah, shut. Yeah, it, it damned him. I mean, it made it airtight. At that point, they needed to make sure that they constructed the case in a way that convinced the, the jurors and ultimately the California Supreme Court that this guy was worthy of the death penalty. And, um, and as far as his death was concerned, um, I was reading here, uh, March 28th of 2020, when he was found dead in his cell, the cause of death was, was pending, as, uh, pending the results of the autopsy. They were stating that there was no signs of trauma. So that leads me to believe that either A, it was natural causes, which I kind of doubt, um, or somebody poisoned him. So, I mean, there's going to be toxicology reports. I mean, we can make arguments for either one. But I I think ultimately— You can make a death look accidental or natural. You could, but, I mean, without word signs of trauma, I mean— even, even you remember the old blanket parties where you take the soap, roll it up in a towel, and you hit somebody in the stomach, and it doesn't leave a bruise? It still leaves trauma underneath the skin. Yeah. Um, and they said that they found those signs of trauma. So do I think somebody took them out? Yeah, I think somebody did. Uh, do I think that it was a guard? No, I, I don't. Because, I mean, look, you're, you're in San Quentin. I mean, you're, you're dealing with some hard asses in there. And probably with the amount of people that he killed— he probably was in population or general population with a relative of one of his victims. So, you know, I'm just saying, I'm kind of putting that out there. Yeah, hindsight 2020. Yeah, hindsight 2020. Especially when you're dealing with uh, criminal elements like that. Yeah. To the point to where a lot of people that are in San Quentin and everything like that. Yeah, they, they're, they're institutionalized. Like pen, they they pen. don't care. Yeah. That and it, it, they could have been like a pimp or something like that. Or yeah, maybe. It's like... It, he had a bad day. He's like, you know what? That motherfucker killed one of my hoes. And well, I'm gonna, <laughs> right. I'm gonna get retribution for that. Yeah. So I mean, there, there, while there's there's a lot of uh, like documentaries and there's a lot of reference material for this particular guy. Uh, you know, they're just. I mean, as far as like his background is concerned, there's really not a whole lot there. And unfortunately, because he's now dead really not any kind of a way that we can kind of break into that. I mean, unless his, you know, ex-wife and two kids. And even then, I think it might be a little touch and go there because it just depends on what kind of a story he gave them at the time. But, I mean, as far as, like, his background is concerned, I mean, without the actual, like, family stepping forward and saying, hey, here's the type of life that he led, uh, I mean, that's up for speculation. So to, trying to, to figure out why and how he went to that end of the spectrum, I mean, really, at this point, we're just we're speculating. But the, the actual crimes and the convictions and the way that the judicial system there in California worked, and I say worked in the truest sense of the word, it worked. It did yeah. its job. Um, you know, that's all documented. And... So was this guy guilty? Absolutely. Do we send? Did we send somebody you know innocent to bar, you know to jail? No. I mean, we they got the guy. Yeah. The, this this is compound of evidence, and it was a span of close to like twenty years. To where yeah, twenty thirty have, years. Yeah. Yeah, to where they actually finally got him to uh, justice, and it, and it, and it does raise raise hope and for. I mean, it's sad to the point where a lot of people don't get that hope right then and there. They don't get the uh, 
hope right there where they need it and everything. It's event, but a lot of the victims they finally get their justice and or the victims' families. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think closure, closure is going to be you know it. Going back that far, uh, yeah, I mean, closure at this point, kind of a no-brainer. It might be safe to assume that a a majority, if not all, of these families did get the closure that they finally needed and they finally deserved. Um, Is it going to make the pain any less? Is it going to make it any more uh, acceptable in their eyes? No, absolutely not, and I wouldn't expect it to be. Um, But on the flip side... They know that he's off the streets. Uh, he's not a member of this living coil anymore. That he's not. He's he's, he's he doesn't exist. Um, but you know, we it, it, series episodes like ours, podcasts like like this series is, uh, and other podcasts that do you know that cover serial murders, that cover you know the the darker side of human nature. I, I think that going forward, we can learn, and you know, we can try to isolate these these instances from happening, you know, again. and By giving information, hey, this is how you can actually... I mean, most of his victims, he, he conned them to get into the vehicle. Yeah, you know, so, I mean, you're always going to have those people that think that they're going to be slick, they're going to get under the radar, they're going to try to work the system to, you know, stay as free as possible for as long as possible. But I think with the way that law enforcement evidence gathering is progressing the way it's evolving coupled with the fact that just it's basic human nature that you're going to get complacent you're going to get cocky because you're going to think that you're you're pretty much invincible um that those are going to be that's going to be a constant uh, throughout the rest of human history and while these instances may still happen i think that ultimately over the course of now and forever they're going to happen less and less. Now, would we like to see, obviously, a day when this this, this type of person doesn't exist? Yeah, I think we will. Um, yeah, but you're going to have to identify the person's brain waves and everything. We still don't know that. Yeah, much well, I mean, we, we can get off on this whole, like, sci-fi tangent about it. But yeah. at the end of the day... Um, they did what they did. They did what they did. And, 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 and in his particular case, the reason is going to be known only to him. Yeah. So, uh, or, I mean, if it is known, that information is not being put out. So, and I, and I think maybe that that might be for maybe a myriad of reasons, whether it be they trying to avoid the whole copycat thing or whatever, um, or, you know, he's in a case file somewhere being studied at, at a, you know, a medical school for psychology or something. Justice was done in this particular case. And whether it was because the, the, the governing body administered the, 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 the sentence themselves um, no, but on the flip side of it, not not to make light of it, you know, of, of an additional murder, but if that is in case, you know, in fact what happened. But in this particular case, I, I think justice was handed out, and ultimately I think it was to the benefit of the state of California, of the taxpayers of California, because they're not having to foot the bill to, to, to put this guy to death. Um do, do I think that if it if it was foul play, are they going to figure out who did it? Yeah, I mean, because that's their job. Um, if they sweep it under the rug, that's on them. I mean, that they've 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 got to they're they're the ones that got to look at themselves in the mirror and say, you know, did I make the right decision or not? But uh, as it relates to the context of this episode, as it relates to the context of our series that we're that we're building here, um, he was a bad dude. Yeah, you know? and and 
you know, for whatever his motivation was to, to, to live the life that he led. Um, you know, I mean, that's going to be between him and God. And so ultimately at the end of the day, he's dead and buried now. And so, you know, we can, we can close the book on him and we can figure out who we're going to do next week. And, and I was actually thinking probably, uh, not Ed Kemper. I, I messed up, uh, Ed Gaines. Think, uh, you Ed think Gaines. Ed knew Ed Gaines? Yeah. Yeah, we can do Ed Gaines. Uh, basically, he was a uh, serial killer in the 1950s. Uh, he's the guy that a lot of movies were based on him. Psycho was based on him. Yeah. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was chain. Right. Uh, was, and he was in Michigan. He wasn't in Texas. The Texas Chainsaw... Uh, Ed Gaines was... A, that's where... <laughs> I, I get that a lot. It's like, oh, I went to the place where they... Uh, the the killer for they did for Texas Chainsaw National. It's like no, he didn't. He was in Michigan. Yeah, but uh, it's one of those ones the director actually said that. But uh, we'll talk to you later. Keep it safe, people. Make sure you don't get uh, murky murked from us, you killer. Love you guys. Bye. Take it easy.